Futurecast. If I couldn't have been uh, in the fashion business, I would have loved to have been an architect. That was Calvin Klein, the legendary fashion designer. I'll be speaking with him today about the collaborative process of designing his own house on an oceanfront property in Southampton, New York. I'm your host, Alistair Gordon, and this is Poetics of Place, the podcast that explores the healing impact of good design. Hi, Calvin. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you, Alistair. How are you? I'm very well. We're here today with Calvin Klein, legendary American designer and cultural icon, to talk about his beautiful house on Meadow Lane in Southampton. Welcome, Calvin. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Right beside me, I have your big, heavy, black and white Calvin Klein book that was published, I think, in 2017 with Rizzoli. And I've been looking through the pages, and it's such a beautiful testament to your life and your legacy in the fashion business. And I see, looking through these photographs, that your work is not just about the clean lines, muted palettes, and minimalism. It's it's a lot about light versus shadow, chiaroscuro, you know, human flesh and sensuality, as well as a provocative type of gender bending that pushed conventional notions of fashion and sexuality to new territories. Uh, you weren't just creating trends in fashion, you were altering the zeitgeist, especially those giant billboards and TV ads with Kate Moss and Marky Mark. What's impressed me about your work is how you managed to find a kind of visceral sensuality, even seduction, in the simplest forms and textures. <clears throat> and I can see that you brought that same sensibility, or some of it anyway, to the house you built on Meadow Lane. Is there a connection you see between the work you've done in fashion? And you know, you've done several houses that I know of. You, you seem to enjoy it. I have done several houses. I do enjoy it. Uh, whether I'm working on clothes, or uh, advertising, or the environment, the home. I'm still in it, and I'm still involved with every detail. I think the history of your property is maybe worth a little background. It's It sort of was a kind of controversial property. I mean, going back to the 20s, right? DuPont, it was DuPont's mansion, and then that crazy dragon's head. When you bought it, were you thinking of renovating the existing structure, or did you always know you wanted to tear it down? I thought I would tear it down. Right. And I really didn't know much about the property and the house and all the stories. I, I didn't really care. But I thought I would tear it down. And then after I bought it, I showed it to my friend Stephen Klein, the photographer. And he said, why tear it down? It's going to take you years to build. You don't know what you want to build right at this moment. He said, why don't you live in it for a while and see how it feels? And I thought, what a great idea. And I did live in it for a few years. I fixed it up temporarily so that I could live in it. And some of my friends just loved it. They loved the craziness of the whole thing. I would walk on the beach and I would have an anxiety attack every time I looked up at the house and thought to myself, you actually live there. <laughs> one one writer described it as a Disney castle on LSD. So I can <laughs> the idea of you living in those with those gargoyles and and turrets. The turrets, <laughs> the turrets. There are turrets all over the place. I had every architect try and figure out a way to get rid of the turrets without the house completely collapsing. Right. There was no way to do it. So I threw a big party and then tore the house down. But I love the process of working on houses. 
buildings, stores. If I couldn't have been in the fashion business, I would have loved to have been an architect. When you were living in the old castle, did you get some ideas of what you wanted just by being there? Because it's such a spectacular site on Meadow Lane. You've got the ocean on one side and the bay on the other. Did you have a lot of ideas before you started working with an architect? No, I'd gone through, I talked to a few architects about what we could do with the property. But essentially, my ex-wife, Kelly, lives in the house that we lived in together in East Hampton, also on the ocean with double water views. It was on uh, Georgica Pond as well. And the layout of that house was the inspiration for the layout of Meadow Lane. Oh, was that the one trip house originally? It was, yeah. Kelly and I had Thierry Despont work with us on that house. And that was maybe the second or third project he ever did. Wow. As you say, it's a very similar landscape. The landscape, the layout, the layout of the rooms. I took the inspiration from the house in East Hampton. Right. And I knew I wanted it to be more minimal than the East Hampton house was. But then when I finally decided that Fred Stell and his team would work with me on Meadow Lane, then it came alive. Fred is a great guy to work with and his people, all of them really good. Then it came together. They had lots of ideas. And so even though I had a structure and the bones of what I wanted to do in my mind, it needed a lot of work. And they were instrumental in the house becoming what it is. Fred Stell of Stell Lamont Rouhani Architects joined the project as the design continued to take shape. What's interesting to me about it is that he not only has a sensitivity that's elevated above most people's sensitivity, but he also has an ability to edit out. Early on, we did some drawings of the house. One of the people during drawings put a red Corvette in the driveway. Calvin couldn't look at the drawings. He could not look at the design of the house. We had to take him away and come back the next day with black and white drawings and no Corvette. Were they from the oak floors? They're kind of pale oak floors. Yes, Denmark. Oh, Denmark, that's right, that's right. And um, we actually knew the tree. Oh, really? The, the trees that the floors came from. Oh my God. Uh, I mean, the man who owned the flooring company, he was very personally involved in the selection of the floors, the wood. I've done this before at the house in East Hampton. Kelly and I sent a man who used to design wood jewelry for me, for my company. We sent him all around the country buying floorboards from old barns. And those floorboards, we matched them with the flooring man. So each board was selected. It's still minimally furnished. And some of the pieces beside the Corbusier and the, and the Privé are, look like custom-made pieces that you designed or you designed with the architects or like the dining room table. I have, I mean, it's an extraordinary, it looks like a, a museum gallery with just this black slab running down the middle, going out to the outside in the ocean. What a beautiful space. When I lived in the house before we tore it down, it had a huge dining room. That house was 50,000 square feet. And so I thought, well, what am I going to do with this? And so I just made some furniture to fill up the space. And I made this enormous dining table. 
which was very inspired by Donald Judd. And I had someone who had made furniture for me before for showrooms and stores make the dining table and the chairs. And then when that house became the new house on Meadow Lane, it was smaller, so all the rooms were smaller. So I cut down the table, <laughs> uh, cut it down, and to fit in the, the dining room now, and, and stained it black. That's beautiful. How many people can sit at that table? 22. And then there's almost no, that I can see, maybe there was, art on the walls. You, you really just kept the walls as these pristine, sculptural, almost kind of spaces. It's interesting that um, you say there was no art on the walls. One of the first interior designers, or the first one I worked with, was Joe Durso. Mm-hmm. And I, I worked with Joe in, in the 70s. And we used to get excited about the lacquer finish on the walls. And we didn't want to disturb the walls with art. I'd have photographs. I love photography. And so I'd have lots and lots of photographs and just lean them up against the wall rather than filling a wall with it. I prefer things not disturbing my eye. I don't like clutter, obviously. And I've taken that attitude from the 70s right through doing uh, Meadow Lane. And I love sculpture. So I put sculptural pieces in the room, in the space, rather than applying to the wall a painting. Working with Calvin, it was clear that everything had equal importance. We would talk about the color of the gravel, the size of the gravel on the driveway, with the same importance as the finish on the dining table or the kitchen cabinet. And everything mattered. And we, we would have you know, the white of the walls, the plaster, we would have a dozen different samples of white, slightly different textures, slightly different shades. We would you know, get down to maybe two or three that you know, was hard for some of us to sort of see the difference and we would keep going and making another sample that would be slightly this or slightly that until it was perfect. And that's Michael Lamont, co-architect on the Meadow Lane House. I think the most interesting thing to me is that you began this process, and as I've read, I think it's true, you reduced the building mass from the original crazy castle building by more than 50%. You really shrank the living space way down and allowed the landscape to kind of become a part of the overall project. I wanted that house. I imagined the house being put up before there were any homes in the area. And I thought, wouldn't it be just great to have in the dunes this house? And so I had as much of nature come as close to the house as possible. Most of the building is glass. The doors, glass doors slide open and disappear so that you really feel like you're living outside as well as inside. It's a beautiful arrangement. And just for people who obviously haven't seen it, most people haven't seen it and it hasn't been published very much, if at all. It's one sort of long rectilinear box that's black, a stained wood on the outside with all, all that glass you mentioned. And then a smaller guest house, right, to the west, and then another structure to the east of the house, which is kind of a studio uh, pool house with a swimming pool and a pergola. There's a gym there and screening room. Underground screening room, right? Yes. 
So you really took, instead of this massive monolithic thing that was there, you've broken it up into these three different structures and allow the landscape, because I know you, you got very involved in every every aspect of it, but even the landscape with... Edwina. Edwina, yeah. She, so she was very involved in, in helping you out with that? Absolutely. She helped me out with the house I had in Miami as well. So what were some of her ideas? Obviously, she's very into native species planting and bringing the landscape back to more the way it was before so much development happened in the Hamptons. And that's exactly what I wanted, too. And that's the reason why we worked together. I had seen, I was looking for a house in Miami. And I noticed after going to many houses, the landscaping, landscape always looked the same, no matter where you went. It was a mixture of all different kinds of palms and it was very typical of what you, you expect in, um, in Miami. And then I saw one house, which I loved, and the landscaping was a whole other story. I was really struck by that and then found out that Edwina had done it. And so we met, and then the next thing, we worked together in the house that I did buy in, in Miami, and that led to Meadow Lane. The things of mine that he had seen that brought him to me in the first place were rather that. In effect, native landscapes are quite pared down. They're quite simple, really. Even though horticulturally, they're very complex. They support very complex systems. The effect is peaceful. And that's sort of an underlying theme that I never discussed with Calvin, but I think is actually true of his work, that there's a calmness to it. And I think when you haven't wrenched a landscape into some kind of controlled state, there's an inherent peace in that that appealed to him. That's Edwina van Gaal. She's the landscape designer who works creatively with native species. So yes, we see the same things. We're on the same page. It was just a joy to work with her. I also heard that you did this very interesting thing, which occasionally is done in, in institutional building and, and commercial building, is you had full-scale mock-ups of the main house and even some of the furniture and, and maybe the guest house built so you could see it, the proportion and the relationship to the landscape. Did that help? Yes. It seemed like a crazy thing to do. <laughs> and in the town, people thought I was building the house until they saw that we tore it down. And then they thought, well, what in the world is going on here? <laughs> I find it difficult to create space just on paper and really know what it's going to be like and what it's going to feel like from just having it on paper. This is not the first time that I mocked up my apartment on Perry Street in New York. We mocked up the whole apartment all the walls, everything. And I had it like that for a few months so that I can walk into the space, sense how high the ceilings are, how the size of the room proportions, and to know if it feels right or if it needs to be moved or shifted one way or another. And I did the same thing with Meadow Lane. The height of the ceilings on the ground floor is 14 feet. I had to walk into a space and determine that 14 felt good to me. And I adjusted a lot from after we put up the full-scale mock-up of the house. Now, mind you, we didn't build a house, but we framed out what the rooms would be like, the height of the floor, the size of the doors. I mean, 
a lot was done and accomplished that, that way. And I think I saved myself a lot of change orders. I'm sure you did. I think it's a great idea. I think for most people, it seems extreme, you know, to build the mock-up. And even I saw in one of the photographs, you blocked out the furniture too, even to see where that would go and how that would work. I think that's an amazingly cool idea. In the case of, there was a Corbusier desk that I bought and put in the bedroom, my bedroom. The desk was large. It was in Paris. And so I just wanted to see how it would fit in the space. Uh, in that room before I purchased it. And so we built a mock-up. We didn't build a piece of furniture, but we, we mocked it up for proportion and it helped a great deal. Fred told me too that you really got involved in every, he was talking about, I think, the tinting of the glass. What happened is these eight different tints and the tints depended on the type of glass we were putting together, laminated. One was supposed to be just dead clear, no difference from what's real. And I'm looking through the glass and all these samples, looking from what would, would have been the house to the ocean. And I'm thinking, there's something wrong because I've been working with color all my life. They mismarked it. I said to Fred and company, I said, there's something just not right. I said, the one that's supposed to be clear isn't. It's very tinted. So they made mistakes when they put little stickers and which glass it was. I was by myself because I thought I could do this. Fortunately, I, I was enough on top of it to know that I would have ordered the wrong glass based on the notes. So that was a thing that I was, I thought, well, I've still got the eye anyway. This is a strange question, but I thought of it just as we were starting out today. Uh, I don't know if you've been in isolation in Los Angeles most of the time these last few months, or have you been all over the place? In Los Angeles. That's also a house you designed, right? No. This house I bought, I redid a lot of the finishes. But this house was really a house that I could live in rather quickly and see how I felt about living in LA half the year. Well, now, as it turns out, I mean, I'm sure I'll be spending more than half the year here. And when things calm down, more time again in New York. But um, I love it here. You sold your house. The last time I saw you, I remember, I think you'd either just sold it. You were about to sell your house in Miami. Did you really disconnect with Miami or do you still go there for part of the year? No, I don't. I went during a rainstorm uh, the last time I was in Miami. For days, it rained. I, I like California. It's kind of great here. And I loved what the time I spent in Miami. I love that house, too. Yeah, it was great. I had a really a wonderful old house. That was a great experience, too. Did you think of, because I've been thinking a lot about this myself, that, you know, just the idea of shelter and what it means to be in your own house in isolation over a long period. And we were all sort of stuck in our houses for four or five months. Did you have any ideas that changed about human shelter and habitation and how one lives in the house? Because I think a lot of people are going through that now. This house that I'm in works just fine. We're here five, six months now. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be anyplace else. And I'm perfectly happy here. I wish I could see more people. We see four people. So that's tough. Maybe because I've been so personally involved in the way I live 
that I'm happy. I have what I want. And that's really a, a nice thing. So all the time and the energy that I put in to work on, on these projects, I've enjoyed the process, loved it. It's amazing it could be here that long and still feel just fantastic. You sold the house recently, and I guess two questions are, why did you sell it uh, at this particular point in your life? And are you conceiving of a new house? Or are you, are you going to have another house in the Hamptons, or are you just going to keep moving on and spend more time in L.A.? No, there wouldn't be another house in the Hamptons. I spent a lot of time in the Hamptons over the years, and I loved being in the house that I just sold on Meadow Lane. Loved it. But I wanted to do other things. I wanted to travel. Uh, I thought renting a house in different parts of the world during the summer months would be great. And I'd always feel guilty that I was only using Southampton 10 weeks out of a year. And then if I did go away, I would think, oh, I really should be in the Hamptons. So I kind of relieved myself of what was becoming a burden and decided this gives me an opportunity to be free again. Poetics of Place is produced by Electrocast Media and Gordon DeVries Studio. Our cultural co-sponsor for today's podcast is Guildhall in East Hampton, New York. Our thanks to Andrea Grover, Amy Kerwin, Eric Kuhn, Mark Netter, Peter Rafelson, Barbara DeVries. And this is Alistair Gordon for Poetics of Place. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. Cadet, host of her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women. Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Electric acid.